0: Hello and welcome to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. I'm Susanna Streeter I'm the Senior Investment and Markets Analyst here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. And I'm with Sarah Coles, our Senior Personal Finance Analyst. I'm here in my pretty dark at studio broom cupboard recording this. Sarah, what have you been up to since our last podcast?
1: Well, mainly I've been walking around the house turning lights off and asking the kids whether they think money grows on trees. So essentially it looks like I'm turning into my dad. Um, But I I can't imagine I'm the only person who's glued to my smart meter at the moment, especially now energy prices have shot up.
0: Yeah, I mean, prices, all sorts of prices that were going through the roof. I paid £3.70 for a takeaway coffee the other day. I almost cancelled the order, but the, the milk was already being frothed. But I tell you, I savoured every sip.
1: (laughs) I suppose at those
0: kinds of prices,
1: it it might be a good reason to to cut back on caffeine. Actually, you know, maybe inflation is what I need to fuel a health kick, especially given the price of chocolate at the moment.
0: Yeah, I mean, actually, everybody I I know seems to be on a bit of a health kick, whether it's Fitbits or apps monitoring calorie intake or following gurus on instagram offering tips on improving diets in fact i am particularly obsessed by one biochemist who styles herself as the glucose goddess and gives her tips on limiting glucose spikes during the day not that i do what she says
1: It's always great, isn't it, to call yourself a goddess. But I suppose she's she's not the only person who's out there selling an innovation in health and wellness. And there's been a huge increase in companies selling these services, as well as big strides in technology and medical science. And we'll be exploring some of these developments and taking the temperature of the health sector in an episode we're calling In Sickness and In Wealth. And to
0: put the health sector under the microscope, sorry, I couldn't resist the pun there, uh, we'll be talking to Dr. Patrick Short, CEO of UK health tech startup Sano Genetics, which operates in the personalized medicine research space. Hello there, Patrick. I suppose with so many developments, it must be a really fascinating time for the health sector from an investment perspective. And does it look pretty exciting from where you're standing?
2: It absolutely does, and, and great to be here. Thank you all so much. It is an exciting time. Lots of changes in new technologies, more opportunities to help patients, especially those with rare diseases. So it's definitely an exciting time, although, of course, not without its challenges with changes in the stock market and uh, COVID and all other sorts of things giving us uh, giving us as an industry a hard time. But ultimately, it has been precipitating some very welcome changes in clinical trials and medical research more broadly.
1: Thanks, Patrick. We're actually really looking forward to finding out more about these developments later in the podcast. We'll also be talking to Sophie Lund-Yates, our lead equity analyst, and she's been looking at some listed companies in the sector, from pharmaceuticals to those serving the health sector. Sophie, some of this sector's really fallen out of favour slightly since the onset of the pandemic. And in the US, the S&P Healthcare Index is a fifth lower than the overall index. So are there still some areas of interest?
3: Yes, definitely still some areas of of real interest. And I would be keen to point out it's not just digital services that that we need to be looking at, but some kind of bread and butter medical services as well, which could offer some opportunity for for investors.
0: Thanks, Sophie. We'll discover more of the details a bit later. We'll also hear from Emma Wall, our Head of Investment Analysis and Research here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. She's been talking to Olivia Micklem, who's a fund manager and analyst in the Artemis US equities team. And we'll also have the quiz looking back at some of the oddities of the medical world through the years, including the operation with a 300% fatality rate. But I'm afraid there's no time for you to try and work out that one, Sarah, because we need to discuss those pretty shocking forecasts about a looming downturn for the economy amid soaring inflation. Yes, as we record this, the new inflation figures
1: are just about to be released and we already know they're going to make for some really difficult reading. So the Bank of England issued its forecast earlier this month, and it's now predicting that inflation is going to rise to over 10% at its peak at the end of this year, which has been driven particularly by rising energy bills. And it's going to take a terrible toll on millions of people who face really quite an impossible challenge in meeting these rising costs. And unfortunately, the bank expects wages to fall well behind. So we haven't seen inflation like this in 40 years, and we're facing the biggest cost of living crisis in a generation. And at the same time, because so much of our money is going to be absorbed by the essentials, it means very little left over for anything else, which is going to hit growth. So the bank expects the economy to actually shrink in the last three months of this year. There's a serious question about how much impact rate hikes can have when so many price rises are dictated by the essentials that we'll still need regardless. And then there's also the issue of imported inflation, particularly from higher oil and gas prices, which is beyond any UR control. But the bank can't just sit on its hands with inflation running so hot. So it raised rates to 1% and it added that the market was pricing in a rise to 2.5% by the middle of next year.
0: Well, it was all looking a lot rosier at the start of the year, wasn't it, with the economy bouncing back above pre-pandemic levels. But it wasn't a dramatic increase in output for sectors across the board that lifted the economy above its pre-crisis level. Instead, it's the jump in human health and social work activities that was the biggest driver, which pushed the economy back above pre-pandemic levels in February, with high demand for extra healthcare services through the pandemic. Now, in earlier snapshots, late last year, the ONS, the Office for National Statistics, highlighted the positive boost that came from the £1.1 billion monthly pickup in the pace of NHS track and trace vaccinations. So you can see the impact healthcare is having. But this is worrying in terms of overall economic output as those effects are wearing off as we come out of the pandemic certainly in terms of activity surrounding vaccinations and it really does show just what a driver healthcare has been for the economy. And long term, there is certainly the argument that healthcare will continue to play an increasing role in the economy, with ageing populations and groundbreaking new technologies really coming to the fore. It is expected that there will continue to be breakthroughs in research and development sparked by that engine of investment into finding vaccines and treatments for Covid and meanwhile there are all sorts of developments from smartphone apps, monitoring and helping us understand and manage our health to artificial intelligence and even the role of health in the metaverse if you can believe it. Now there have been medical breakthroughs including the development of pretty novel gene therapies, step changes in the treatment of cancers, Innovations that have changed the face of medical testing, and of course, the really groundbreaking work into vaccines. Everything from medical devices to new drugs and new applications of existing medication is constantly under development. So this is a a real crossover between innovation and health and this is where our guest is operating. Sanogenetics is a personalised medicine research company. It uses technology and at-home DNA testing and it's working with global pharma, biotechs and patient groups to try and accelerate genetic disease research and I'm really pleased to say Patrick Short, the CEO, Dr. Patrick Short, I should say, is still with us. So, Patrick, I did a little bit of an explanation here, but can you tell me a bit more about the business?
2: I think you nailed it with the description. So, thank you. And again, great to be here. We started the company in 2017 really with an aim to tackle what's a really big problem in the industry. It takes about 15 years on average, and a billion, more than a billion dollars to develop a new medicine. Um, And there's obviously a a million reasons why this is, but one of the most central ones is is clinical trials and clinical research as a whole is incredibly risky, costly, and time-consuming to conduct. Um, And so what we've developed, as you mentioned, is a platform that's really focused on personalized medicine research, and in particular, helping organizations, uh, including biotech, pharma, And large scale national precision medicine initiatives to run these studies in a hybrid and often fully decentralized way. So that means completely online or at home, or at least minimizing the amount of time that's needed to be spent in a clinical trial site or hospital. And happy to go into more detail here, but really it stemmed from a personal experience on both the research perspective, myself and co founders seeing how difficult and time consuming and expensive it was to conduct these studies. And also on a personal level, taking part in research and seeing just how analog it was. So these two together um, are really two of the big drivers behind why this kind of research is is still today uh, so expensive and and on the topic of inflation, uh, often getting worse year over year, how much uh, time and cost it takes to develop a new drug.
0: So, what was it like when you took part in a research project yourself? What did you think? What was your takeaway? And were you there kind of uh, I suppose, being a guinea pig thinking I could do better here?
2: It's really interesting. So having been on both sides of it, both a participant and a researcher, uh, you realize that the researchers are really working hard on their side to make new discoveries. but you don't see that often for the participant side. So there's a couple of things that are almost universal. you Uh, often have a very analog experience lots of lots of paper uh, lots of paper forms to fill out anyone who's been in a hospital waiting room um you know knows this is almost still the case across the board it's also the case in medical research a second and, and you know really kind of simple thing is whether you get any information back at all from the research you take part in so many of the research studies i was part in you submit a sample and then you never hear anything back um And it's not because the researchers aren't working on it. It's just that the infrastructure really isn't in place to automatically and reliably and scalably return useful information back to participants. So simple things like this are the kind of things we've built into the platform so that when you take part in a research study, you instantly get some feedback that's useful and relevant to you. And you don't have to um, pester the researchers to say, hey, did you ever finish testing my samples? Things like that happen automatically in feedback to the participant.
1: So can you tell us just a little bit about the technology you're developing and how this platform works?
2: Yes, there's there's two key aspects to it. One is the software platform that um, runs really all of the all of the kind of basic operations of taking part in a hybrid uh, personalized medicine research study. So learning about the study for the first time through uh, you know through a custom website landing page consenting and understanding what it means to take part and what your rights are as a participant, taking online screening questions and questionnaires, and then ultimately taking part in the study. So the software platform is is a big aspect of it. The second major aspect is the at-home genetic testing. So it's a non-invasive saliva-based genetic test that allows participants to take part in these kind of studies without ever having to leave their home. And we've applied this to a wide range of diseases from you know, neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's um, in the pandemic to long COVID, uh, as well as to immune conditions like ulcerative colitis and multiple sclerosis. So it's, it's really a um, twofold approach to making this research uh, completely online and at home uh, in many cases, and in some cases taking a hybrid approach where much of the activity is online or at home through the platform and, and only when needed participants go into a a clinical trial site, or uh, you know, or hospital, or clinic, to take part in parts of the research that really can't be done at home. Things like MRIs or, um, you know, or, or blood samples.
0: How can you verify the data if you're relying on somebody at home to monitor it themselves, rather than getting a researcher to take the reading?
2: Many of these tests, if they're going to be used in a clinical trial, for example, will be revalidated uh, at. A clinical trial site with a participant but for other kinds of research um, if it's an observational study where you just really would like to understand what proportion of patients carry a certain genetic marker uh, there really is no motivation for uh, for for patients to uh, to mislead in that case so we you know we we know that um, that generally speaking people are reliable when taking these tests and from an analytical perspective we've done extensive validations to look at how the saliva tests uh, compare with, with things like blood. Um, and with, you know, with few exceptions, it, it really is a one-to-one comparison. And, and this hasn't just been done by us, but by many other groups. So it, it is a really important factor to consider. It depends on really the, the type of research of whether an at-home test um, you know, can, can be relied on completely in and of itself or whether it needs to be validated um, you know, with, with a second, maybe more standard approach.
0: Now, you talked about some of the diseases and illnesses that you could help. But are there any new specific treatments
2: that this could lead to? In terms of new technologies that are coming into the market, what I'm most excited about are many of the new gene therapies, gene editing approaches. The opportunity to treat rare diseases or complex common diseases that are currently untreatable is, is really tremendous. So that's one big area we're combining genetic testing to more clearly identify patients that are affected by these conditions or stratify uh, patients into groups. Plus this new technology is really exciting, but I also think it's important to not um, discount some of the workhorse technologies like small molecules that have been, um, you know, maybe aren't the new, new exciting thing from a technology standpoint, but actually there's a lot of really great work that's being done to understand some fundamental biology and then use some of these tried and tested methodologies um, that use, you know, that use things as simple as small molecules to treat some really complex uh, conditions. So I'm really excited about the new technology, but I think, um, you know, even, even the existing technology has a really important role to play.
1: So obviously, there's there's lots of potential for the sort of the outcomes of this process. but in terms of inputs, so sort of what's in it for people actually using the technology themselves?
2: There's a couple of big drivers. the The biggest one is an opportunity for you or someone who's in your family to take part in research that could be personally really impactful. So as an example, a clinical trial um, for many patients can represent an opportunity to Receive a treatment that may be uh, transformative for them. It is, you know, shouldn't be overstated. It's, it, these are research programs and there's risk that's carried. But for many patients, especially with rare diseases that uh, don't currently have a treatment, a clinical trial uh, is, is a huge opportunity, potential opportunity um, you know, for, for a meaningful change to their life or their family's life. The second major area is altruism, and we know that many, many patients and research participants are motivated by the fact that they may not be able to help themselves directly, but they can help others like them, uh, or they can just help people more generally. So these are the two really big motivators for taking part in research more generally. And one of the things that we think about is how do we maximize the impact that um, that patients and participants can have, and then how do we minimize the friction. Uh, that that it takes to take part in this. One of the big issues that research has in general is often there's very little in it for participants, maybe simply altruism, and we make it really hard for people to take part. But ultimately, we need to flip those, make it really easy to take part and then deliver a lot of value back to participants.
0: There are, though, real privacy concerns, aren't there? Because many people may not want to share their DNA. How do you get over this?
2: Yes, you're absolutely right. And this is one of the founding principles when we started the company. We looked around in 2017 and saw that across the industry, there really was no way that participants could both take part in research and have really strong guarantees around their data privacy. And we felt like this didn't have to be a trade-off. So from the very outset, we built the platform so that participants have full control over their data. They can always download their data, they can always take it off the platform, and they also have full control over who does and who doesn't have access to it. Um, And I think one of the advantages we have as a relatively young company is that we were able to build this in from the outset. We saw many organizations that struggled mightily to even comply with the basic tenets of GDPR. um, But we took these really, you know, as, as the starting point from the beginning and wanted to ask the question of what if participants didn't have to choose between having an impact and having data privacy and what would that look like in a modern research platform so it 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 is an enormous issue of enormous importance i think it's only going to grow as a um yeah as as something that participants patients the industry as a whole are, are concerned about in the coming years
1: so susanna touched on some of the sort of exciting things that are going on in the sector at the moment but but what do you see as the next frontiers in health tech
2: There's two major areas I'm really excited about. One are these transformative therapies in rare diseases and in genetic subtypes of common disease. So, you know, gene therapies, gene editing, uh, cell therapies, all this new technology has an opportunity to really fundamentally shift the way. Uh, we treat diseases that were previously untreatable. And I think this is incredibly exciting. And um, it's going to be really one of the big stories in the next 10 years. We've already seen uh, you a know, number of incredible breakthroughs in this space. And I think it's only going to accelerate. The second area is, is actually in using data and genomic data in particular for early disease detection and prevention, uh, something we, we really don't do at a large scale now. But genetics in particular has a really interesting property of you only need to test someone once. Uh, And it's good for your whole life. You can can test for Alzheimer's disease risk factors. You can test for cardiometabolic disease risk. This has to be combined with other conventional risk factors, but it's a really interesting paradigm shift. And, And I think one of the other exciting trends over the next 10 years will be how do healthcare systems start to integrate this technology into something that looks a lot more preventative. Um, and it focused on early detection and treatment early rather than waiting until symptoms manifest. So there's a whole lot of work to be done here. A lot of the scientific groundwork has been laid and the big challenge right now is actually integrating this into healthcare systems and the clinic and, and seeing how it works in the real world at, uh, at scale.
0: Certainly is fascinating. Well, Patrick, thank you so much for telling us all about it. It's been really great to have you on the podcast. And we will be watching how all of this develops with a huge amount of interest.
2: It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me to take part.
0: So let's bring in Sophie Lund-Yates now, our lead equity analyst here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. And Sophie, you've been looking at some of the listed companies operating in the sector
3: what's caught your eye? Really, I need to mention Smith and Nephew here. Um, I won't go on for long because I have talked about them before. But as a bit of a recap, um, essentially, Smith and Nephew make components that go in hip and knee replacements, um, as well as wider medical gear that treats non-urgent elective surgeries and injuries. Um, And I think there's room for growth over the coming year as hospitals play catch up on all those cancelled surgeries from the last couple of years. As ever, there are no guarantees, though.
0: And we can't really not mention AstraZeneca, can we, given how big a name it's become, particularly during
3: the pandemic. Precisely. So COVID thrust the pharmaceutical giant AstraZeneca into the spotlight. Um, as an idea of scale, this is always b- what I try and, try and do because it's hard to wrap your head around this. Astra recorded revenue of $11.4 billion in just its first quarter. So it's truly a, a massive operation. Um, and AstraZeneca became a household name because of the pandemic, as you've mentioned. But because it sold its vaccine at cost during the crisis, it meant revenue benefited, um, but it had no bonus for profits. There is now a COVID medicine business, um, which is likely a permanent fixture for the group, with monoclonal antibody treatments trading well. But the main event at Astra really has little to do with COVID. Analysts are more preoccupied with the group's acquisition of Alexion. So Alexion brings rare disease treatments into the fold. This is a fundamentally attractive area of of the pharmaceutical market. Astra's huge distribution network and Alexion's specialised drugs is is something that makes for a great opportunity. Um, And the reason I refer to specialised drugs for rare diseases as attractive is because there's a lot less competition for business. Um, Developing these drugs is a lot more complex than run of the mill remedies. And because the diseases they treat are less common, there's less scrambling for competitors to come up with treatments. Being a specialist provider in this way also means you can charge more, which helps margins. It's an exciting growth prospect, but Astra is a complicated beast. The biggest concern for me is that debt levels have crept up to an uncomfortable level and the valuation is a bit higher than it has been. So overall Astra is in a strong position, but some volatility is a bit more likely than it was.
0: So let's move on to maybe a company that is focused on the digital nuts and bolts of the healthcare system.
3: Couldn't have described EMIS better myself. Um, A lot of people won't have heard of EMIS, but most of us have inadvertently used its systems. So EMIS provides software to GPs and pharmacies, helping them to manage practices and keep patient records. Its products have been right at the heart of the UK's coronavirus response Its Outcomes for Health product was actually at one point the only system capable of recording vaccines done outside of a hospital setting. Other products have also seen demand surge as healthcare services are increasingly delivered digitally, which should translate into a longer term benefit. EMIS is on the smaller end of the scale than than some companies. Um, Its annual revenues are in the region of £170 million. The biggest attraction where Amos is concerned is that the majority, so about 80% of revenues, are recurring. So that means they're done on a subscription basis, That gives great visibility over trading and makes for a more reliable income and and profit stream. And that in turn feeds into a prospective yield of about 3%, um, although of course, please remember, no dividend is ever guaranteed. On the negative side, I have my eye on the fact that Emis is very reliant on the NHS as a core client, um, increasing the risk of competitors muscling in. That is being addressed by a strategic shift, which will see the private sector make up half of revenues. Um, but until that's achieved, this is one drawback in, in what is otherwise a compelling case. And you mentioned there,
0: Sophie, that obviously more services are being administered online. But of course, we still do need to go into physical spaces to receive healthcare as well, don't we?
3: Yes, and this is where I need to discuss primary health properties. And the clue is in the name with this one. Um, The group is in the business of purpose-built doctor surgeries, which it rents out and earns income from. The pandemic has increased the importance of top quality primary care facilities and primary health properties is, is rushing to meet that demand. There's a healthy pipeline of enhancements to the existing estate and new facilities lined up, potentially securing revenue growth for years to come. As a REIT, um, and that is R-E-I-T, and it stands for Real Estate Investment Trust, um, PHP has to pay out the vast majority of profits as a dividend. So that should ultimately feed through to investors' pockets, and the group has an impressive over 25 years of a track record of growing the dividend. Although, of course, as I've already said, Dividends are variable and there are no guarantees and this should not be seen as a guide to the future. We don't view PHP as a high growth stock. Instead, I feel it is more income focused. So the valuation of 21 times expected earnings is below the longer term average, but it's hardly in value territory. So ups and downs in the markets assessment of the company are possible, in my opinion. Thanks, Sophie. There's there's clearly an awful lot going on in every corner of this sector. Now I'd like to bring in Emma
1: Wall, our Head of Investment Research and Analysis here at Hargrews Lansdowne. She's been speaking to Olivia Micklin, a fund manager and analyst in the Artemis US equities team.
4: Hi, Olivia. Hi, Emma. Lovely to talk to you again. We're here today to talk about healthcare stocks and pharmaceuticals Traditionally, an area that has held up quite well, of course, there are no guarantees, and has been quite defensive. But that's not been the case recently, has it? Because there's just been so much volatility in the market. Absolutely, Emma. I think
5: from where we sit, What we're seeing in the, you know, the larger pharmaceutical companies, they are behaving, as we might hope, um, holding up relatively well in the volatile market. But equally, you know, we're still relying on pharmaceutical companies releasing data on their drug trials that can always add an element of uncertainty into those companies. So whilst they are fairly defensive in the long run, you do have to deal with some uncertainty as you move down into the smaller end of the pharmaceutical industry, down to the biotechs, that has certainly been an area of extreme volatility, very much to the downside as we sit here now. Coming off the back of several years of fantastic funding, a lot of IPO activity, we're really seeing um, a real pullback in that space, which is a shame because really that's where there's a huge amount of innovation and excitement coming in terms of new molecules.
4: And I think that's a really interesting point about innovation because i Putting the market volatility of 2022 aside, the previous two years, healthcare stocks and pharmaceutical stocks have been very much in the headlines. I'm talking, of course, about vaccine development associated with coronavirus and the pandemic. It's really been an area that's had a lot of focus from retail investors who potentially weren't so aware of it before.
5: I think what the pandemic really brought to light is the importance of the amount of spending that this industry does on, on deep, deep clinical research. What we were found as we moved through the pandemic is there was a huge amount of background work that was already done in virology and in areas where we were then able to very, very quickly, as everyone saw, develop very effective vaccines. We now also have an effective treatment drug from Pfizer that people can take once they've been exposed to the virus. I think it's a really exciting time for the industry because I think it's really justified a huge amount of the, of the spending of the work of the business models in that industry. And I think we are now seeing a real tailwind from that shift in terms of spending behind R&D, spending behind
4: academic research, clinical research. I think it's a really exciting time for the industry. Now, you're a professional, you look at specifically US companies all day, every day. This sector is one which, as you've just noted yourself, is pretty complex. How do you begin to analyse companies like these unless you are a double doctor yourself who, you know, with several degrees in bioscience?
5: We try very hard to use our risk-based approach to really see where the opportunities are. As you acknowledge, you know I don't have a medical degree. Um, I'm not a pharmaceutical scientist. I'm not a biologist. But I do understand the key drivers of the overarching industry trends combined with what makes a business successful and what doesn't. And we put that all together into our framework and look at If everything goes well for this company, what do we think we should be paying for it? If everything were to not go so well for this company, what's our downside risk? But ultimately for us, what matters is the valuation of the companies, the market price um, and where the opportunity lies to capture the upside with the appropriate downside in place.
4: Looking then at those opportunities, you have a couple of stocks in the portfolio at the moment. That's the US Smaller Companies Fund. Perhaps you could talk us through those stock specifics and and why you like them?
5: In line with the trends we've just talked about, particularly in in drug research and development, we own a company called Cineos Health. This is what's known as a contract research organisation and what that really means is they are responsible for helping the drug companies create run and manage the trials that are required as part of drug development. So, you know, any drug has to go through a series of regulatory trials to assess not only how effective the drug is, but how safe it is um, and whether or not it should be approved. These trials are very, very complex. They involve huge numbers of patients. They involve an awful lot of data, administering of drugs, real drugs, placebo drugs, um, across, you know, multiple locations, geographical regions, age groups, And that's a very complex thing to do. And what we're finding and what's been a long-term trend for the industry is all size of pharmaceutical companies, from the very large ones all the way down to small biotech, want to outsource this. They want to get someone else who's got better expertise and a better infrastructure rather than having to make that investment themselves. And that's where these CROs come into play. Cineos Health um, traditionally was always very, very successful in the kind of middle market, so mid-sized biotech companies. Through some acquisitions, they started to move down the spectrum to some of the smaller companies. And then through some of their own internal um, innovation, they have developed more service lines and a more comprehensive offering of products to be able to offer things to the larger pharmaceutical companies as well. And we're really seeing that benefit start to come into their business performance. We're seeing the backlog, which represents the number of agreements they have in place with different pharmaceutical companies. That backlog has been growing really, really nicely. In addition, they have another business line which helps with the selling of the drugs. So once drugs are approved, how do they get into the marketplace? How do they reach the right patients, reach the right doctors? And again, it's an area where the pharmaceutical companies want to be able to outsource some of that business. Cineos have done a really, really good job of becoming a real player in that market. Again, we're seeing really nice growth in the agreements. And then what you're starting to see is the ability to cross-sell between those two segments. So really offering... A pharmaceutical company, a real end-to-end service with a single provider from the beginning of the initial research process with a particular drug all the way through to getting that to the right patients. So we really like um, how that's been performing. When we got involved initially, we really like the risk-reward profile and we're really excited to see how they can continue to kind of drive growth in the top line by winning more and more customers And in addition, they've got some great work going on in order to improve their cost base. So we're
4: seeing really nice margin progression. So looking then at the sector, because of course, there are no guarantees. What are the risks that you're thinking about? With healthcare and pharmaceuticals, do you have to think about political risk? I mean, does it matter who's in the White House? How does that affect the sector?
5: Absolutely. What you see, particularly in the US, is it's a huge private market, as we know, the healthcare system, not like we have it in the UK. And so what you have to deal with is who's paying for their care at any given point. Is it a government payer? If you're elderly or you're low income, you receive your care through the government, much like the NHS. But if you're in neither of those buckets, you have private insurance. That arrangement means there's a lot of different people involved in who is responsible for paying for care at a given point in time. And as a result, you can get different pressures from whether or not a particular insurer wants to pay for a particular drug or doesn't, or whether the government wants to pay for a particular drug or doesn't. So that's something we have to monitor very carefully. Historically, the drug companies have often come under scrutiny for their prices. Are their prices too high? Now, unfortunately the way that the conditions that are being researched have developed is we're getting more and more complicated conditions, more and more complicated drugs are required. And unfortunately, that comes at greater expense. But that hasn't stopped some scrutiny legitimately being placed on the pharmaceutical companies. I do think what we're seeing, and I think the pandemic really showed us that, is actually these drugs are priced for a reason in order to help fund further research. The drug companies are... In a better position than they have been historically to justify their business models. Nevertheless, it will always be an area of discussion and it's always something that we factor into how we think about valuing these companies in order to make sure we reflect that risk appropriately. Olivia, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Emma.
0: Well, that was Emma Wall talking to Olivia Micklem, fund manager and analyst in the Artemis US Equitus team. You're listening to Switch Your Money On from Hoggreys Lansdowne. And please bear in mind that those were the views of the fund manager and are not individual stock recommendations. OK, now, Sarah, it's time to move on to the quiz. And I've been doing my own research as usual. Although in this
1: case, it's research into some of the odder things lurking in the history of medicine. And I have to say, I'm, I'm already really worried about this one.
0: I think you should be. Uh, Because some of it isn't pretty, Sarah, and I'm just going to warn you now. Right. You remember I asked you about the operation with a 300% fatality rate. So my first question is, what do you think caused it? Was it an over-enthusiastic amputation, a patient who got angry, or a wayward application of medication? (laughs) Oh, my word, I haven't a clue. They all sound quite frightening.
1: But, you know, I know those early amputations were pretty grisly. So I'll go for that one.
0: You're right, it was an incident in the life of Robert Liston who gained fame and fortune as one of the most successful surgeons of his time but also a bit of notoriety because this was back in the mid-1800s and back then, without any anaesthetics, surgery was a really quick and pretty brutal business done in front of an audience of medical students. Imagine that. One of whom would be summoned to hold the patient down. Now, in this particular case... Liston was in such a hurry to remove a lower leg that he accidentally also cut off the fingers of this assistant, this one assistant who had uh, been summoned, and both the patient and the assistant died of sepsis. The third death was the student onlooker who died of shock. That's really horrible. I'm sorry, that was really grim. Big apologies to anyone eating right now. But we are going on now to a second slightly grisly question. Which of the following creepy crawlies isn't directly used in medical treatment? Is it leeches, maggots, or spiders?
1: Oh my word.
0: They all they all sound so disgusting.
1: I thought leeches were kind of a medieval thing, so so I'll go for leeches.
0: No, in fact, leeches are still used for bloodletting in some specific surgical cases, such as when there's a build-up of it in very small veins after surgery. And maggots can be used in certain types of wounds, which I won't go to any details about, but it involves dead tissue. And although there is some research underway into the healing potential of spiders' webs, the spiders themselves are out of the picture. And I know it's not a medical procedure but I have actually had fish nibbling my feet, apparently it was for a pedicure, it wasn't medical but I did have to try it out, it was in an airport once and I, I must admit I wouldn't do it again.
1: I mean, that's all my nightmares completely sorted for the next few
0: weeks now. Okay, so I I do have one more slightly less grim cure coming up. Alexander Fleming famously, of course, discovered penicillin when clearing out old Petri dishes in St Mary's Hospital and discovering one with a blob of mould on it had killed the bacteria. Now, the name of the wonder drug eventually came from the mould family it belonged to, but he initially came up with his own name for it. So now you've got to guess what it was. And I have a multiple choice again. Was it The Magic Bullet, St Mary's Mead, or Mould Juice? It
1: doesn't actually sound like any of those could possibly be true. Although, actually, I'm pretty sure St Mary Mead was where Miss Marple lived. So I think you've thrown me a red herring there. So I'll go with The Magic Bullet.
0: No, it was the much less attractively named Mould Juice, I'm afraid. So, sorry, Neil point there. OK, back to the slightly grisly, I'm afraid. Uh, During the Black Death, there were all sorts of cures that people decided would ward it off or stop it in its tracks. But which of these potential cures have I made up? Did people try and strap a live chicken onto the affected area? Did they drink a potion they were told was made from powdered unicorn horn? Or did they sit next to an open
1: sewer? Oh, blimey. Well, they, they all sound like you've made them up. Uh, but surely nobody would think sitting next to a sewer would be a good idea. So I'll go for that one.
0: I'm sorry, you were wrong, Sarah. It was a bit of a trick question because they were all thought to be potential cures, believe it or not. So after a strong start, I'm afraid it was two out of four again.
1: Oh, well, uh, you know, if I can get the thought of all those creepy crawlies out my head, I'm just going to count it as a win. Yeah, I'm
0: really sorry about that. It was a bit of a grim way to end the podcast. But thankfully... We've also talked about all the innovations taking place so we don't just need to rely on those creepy crawlers in the future. That is all from us for this time. But before we go, we do need to remind you that this was recorded on the 16th of May 2022 and all information was correct at the time of recording. Nothing in this podcast is personal
1: advice. You should seek advice if you're not sure what's right for you. Investments rise and fall in value so you could get back less
0: than you invest and past performance isn't a guide to the future. Yes, this is not advice or recommendation to buy, sell or hold any investment. No view is given on present or future value or price of any investment and investors should form their own view on any proposed investment.
1: And this hasn't been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research and is considered a marketing communication.
0: Non-independent research is not subject to FCA rules prohibiting dealing ahead of research. However, HL has put controls in place, including dealing restrictions, physical and information barriers to manage potential conflicts of interest, presented by such dealing
1: you can see our full non-independent research disclosure on our website for more information so all that's left is for me to
0: thank our guests patrick olivia sophie emma and our producer elizabeth Hodgson. thank you so much for listening we'll be back again soon so if you enjoyed this podcast please do let us know what you think and do subscribe wherever you get your podcast so you can get a fresh new episode into your inbox as soon as it's ready goodbye